Hello and welcome to episode number 313 of the Armin Show podcast, which has been booming. We have variety. We're learning more about the world, science, economics, various fields, law, and our nation and other nations. On this episode, we have the author of The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite, Daniel Markovitz. Who is Daniel Markovitz? He is the Guido Calabrese Professor of Law at Yale Law School and founding director of the Center for the Study of Private Law. His original BA was in mathematics, which is wonderful, long live math and science, summa cum laude from Yale University, then studied in England with a British Marshall Scholarship, got a master's in econometrics and mathematical economics from the LSE, and a bachelor's of philosophy and doctorate of philosophy from the University of Oxford, and now is professor at Yale Law School and is super informative. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have you on. Now, before we get into the episode, I would like to mention that this book is one of the few this year that I took full notes on, like I've done with a few books and some books. And because it was so interesting and engaging, I like the content and that doesn't happen every time. That's just how life works. How did you get to writing this book? But before that, how did you get to your position at Yale Law School? Um, how I got to my position at Yale Law School was, uh, like most people who end up at jobs like this, uh, a significant measure of luck. You know, uh, I finished my law degree and went on the teaching market at a time when law schools like Yale were interested in people who did work like what I do. Um, and, you know, that changes their cycles in various ways. So uh, a lot of luck and then some portion of you know, things I describe in the book, working very hard um, and happening to be good at school. I would say those are, those are the three main, the main factors. Um, how I came to the book, I think there are two, I came from two directions, actually in a way from opposite directions uh, at the same time. One is that um, I went to, as a child, uh, among other things, in the US, middle-class schools, a middle-class high school in Austin, Texas. And the kids I went to high school with were, I'm absolutely confident, um, just as capable as the kids I went to graduate school and law school with, um, but didn't end up in the same jobs, didn't end up with the same incomes or the same status. And I sort of have always been interested in trying to figure out exactly how and why not. Like, it's not hard to say, well, there's such a thing as privilege and privilege reproduces itself, but that's a very vague and general statement. But to try to figure out what's the exact mechanism by which this happens and is it getting worse or is it getting better? So that was one set of questions that I was interested in. How it is that the middle class is, to my mind, increasingly excluded from meaningful social and economic advantage in our society. And then the other direction that I got to the book from is interacting with my students at Yale Law School who are disproportionately from very privileged backgrounds, certainly gonna go into very privileged lives. Um, but you know, if I had to summarize it in two sentences, I would say that when I joined the faculty in 2000, these were people who felt like they'd won the lottery and like their life was about to be great. 
And nowadays, these are people who are anxious, concerned, insecure, uh, worried both for their own futures and keenly aware that their advantages come at the cost of other people's disadvantages. And so a transformation has happened in the elite also, um, which in some ways is a very, very positive thing. Um, but I also wanted to understand the nature of that transformation. And so those two phenomena drove me, I think, to work on the book. What is meritocracy, which is brought up many times in the book? Great. So, so meritocracy is a system whereby people get social and economic advantage based on their own accomplishments rather than, say, their race or their gender or their class or their parents' wealth. Very importantly, meritocracy is not the same thing as a quality of opportunity. It might, in certain circumstances, be true that meritocracy promotes equality of opportunity. I think in the United States in the 1960s, when meritocracy was invented or first embraced, it did promote equality of opportunity. Mm -hmm. But because education works, and because rich people pay more to educate their children than anybody else, when you let people advance based on their accomplishments, disproportionately it's the case that the people who've had the most invested in getting those accomplishments have the most accomplishments. And mm -hmm. so today, meritocracy no longer promotes equality of opportunity. Right. Now, we are in 2021, but what has led to the current moment of how meritocracy is separating the different economic brackets, what are some of the key elements that have led to this? Great, so I think there are two key elements. Uh, one concerns schooling and education, and one concerns labor markets and work. If we'll start with schooling, here's a very striking thing. Uh, as income inequality has grown, and that's something that's probably familiar to almost everybody who's listening to this, particularly as high-end income inequality has grown, as the rich have gotten richer and richer and left the middle class further and further behind. The greatest growth of any category of consumption inequality has been education. So what's happened in school over the past 50 years is the extent to which the rich spend more on educating their children than anybody else, not just the poor people, but also in the middle class, has grown and grown and grown until a typical 1% child today, if they attend an elite private school, might have $75,000 a year spent on just their school education. Whereas a typical middle-class kid in a normal public school will have maybe $15,000 a year spent on their education. So training and education and schooling have become disproportionately concentrated in the rich. That's one thing that's happened. And we can talk about the details more if you want, but, but as a rough sketch, that's the first thing that's happened. Mm -hmm. The second thing that's happened is there's been a parallel development in, in the workplace in which the way in which we make goods and deliver services has been transformed by technological innovation. So that today, precisely the skills that you need an extremely expensive education to get are the ones that dominate the workplace, that yield the highest wages, that yield the most secure and intensive work. So school and work have both been transformed to create massive differences between a narrow elite and everybody else in society. I like that you broke up the segmentations uh, various times in the book and 
it was clear to see where the biggest gaps are. Where have, where has meritocracy created the biggest gaps between different groups as time has passed? Yeah, great. So um, in schooling, for example, the biggest gaps by far have become between the rich and the middle class. Uh, let me give you a, a very simple illustration of that. If you look at average SAT scores based on the high school seniors' parents' income, kids whose parents have an income over $200,000 a year have average SAT scores that are 250 points higher than kids whose parents have an income of about $50,000 a year. $50,000 a year is roughly speaking the U.S household median, it's a little below, but the middle class kids. Whereas kids whose parents have a middle class income have average SAT scores only 125 points higher than kids whose parents are at or below the poverty line. So today, the rich middle class gap is twice as big as the middle class poor gap. Now, with numbers like that, it's not surprising that if you look at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Stanford, for whom SAT scores are extremely important in building their classes, there are more kids from the top 1% of the distribution than from the entire bottom half. So in education, the biggest gap by far is between the rich and the middle class. Um, in work, the same thing has happened. Uh, you know, uh, a partner at a major law firm in 1960, might have been paid five or 10 times as much as a legal secretary was paid. Today, a partner at a major law firm is paid 50 times as much as a legal secretary. The ratio of pay between an American CEO and the average production worker has gone from 20 or 30 to one to 300 to one. So again, the big gaps are between the rich and the middle class at work also. If you want one last statistic that really drives this home, um, according to the latest federal data, something absolutely astonishing has happened in the US, which is that the poverty rate is at all time historic lows right now, seven and a half, eight percent At the same time, the share of income captured by the richest 1% is at all time historic highs. So the gap between the middle class and the poor is shrinking because there are fewer poor and the gap between the rich and the middle class is growing. Now, these numbers are huge. Let's say 50 to one, 300 to one ratio of profit. Now it's not directly connected to, let's say hard work productivity. What are some of the methods or reasoning behind that huge multiplier that weren't there 60 years ago? So this is a really deep question. Um, you know, one thing that this is connected to is uh, either just fraud or rent seeking. So, you know, uh, think about what happened in the global financial crisis. Um, if you talk to honest elite investment bankers, what they will say is that the political system created a regulatory regime that privatized gains and socialized losses. In other words, if you had enough capital and were at the right place in the financial system, you could take massive risks. And if the risks paid out, you got all the reward. And if the risks did not pay out, 
the rest of society bailed you out. And so when that happens, what do people do? Well, they take a lot of risks, right? They take a lot of risks and then they, they keep taking risks until they win and then they get rich. Now, obviously the precise mechanisms are immensely complicated, but the basic story is exactly that. And so that's now a story in which the elite has become incredibly wealthy without being incredibly productive. Now, I'm, I'll just reveal privately, my politics are pretty far left. Most of the American left thinks that's the dominant mechanism. I actually don't think that's the dominant mechanism. I think that's real, but I think a bigger mechanism is quite different, which is that we have remade our technologies of production so as to make these elite skills in a particular narrow economic sense, in fact, incredibly valuable. So that once you have big finance, complex derivatives, people who have the training to be able to construct and trade them and generate enormous value for their employers by operating complex derivatives markets. 50 years ago, when these derivatives largely didn't exist and weren't traded, you couldn't actually generate a lot of value that way. And so what's happened in addition is that in sector after sector of the economy, finance we've just talked about, I could talk about law, I could talk about management, I could even talk about manufacturing. We've transformed how we make things so that narrow elite skills are in fact incredibly productive. And the largest reason why the rich are so rich today is that they have these skills that are incredibly productive. Last point, and then I'll stop. In my view, that doesn't make it okay. Because in fact, this transformation in our economy is terrible for all the rest of us. So that there's a narrow sense in which they're very productive, but there's a broad sense in which they're extremely damaging to the rest of society because we could use different technologies to make what we make, ones that support middle-class labor, and we don't. This makes sense. For one of those specifics, let's say in the legal field, what would be a reasoning for, let's say, top partners making a huge multiplier compared to what they would make in early law firms? Sure. 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 So, so lawyers do two kinds of things. There are transactional lawyers and then there are litigation lawyers. Um, on the transactional side, U.S. American commercial law and, and, and also U.S. American law relating to corporations and financial markets has been transformed and is distinctive, different from, say, German or French or Japanese law, in that it allows enormous free range for freedom of contract. And that means that if you're a transactional lawyer who can design complicated and sophisticated contractual structures, you can generate a lot of value for your clients. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Germany, where there are many more mandatory terms, the difference between a competent lawyer and a superstar lawyer for the client is relatively small. So we've created a legal regime which rewards extreme talent but here's the problem. It doesn't actually produce better law. What the lawyers' complexities do is they don't make society better off, they just make their clients better off. Mm -hmm. Society would probably be better off under a German style regime. Mm -hmm. On the litigation side in the US, the parties are in control of the evidence and procedure is very intricate. So once again, a very sophisticated lawyer can yield vast returns for her clients 
by managing the litigation in a very effective way. Whereas on the, con the European continent, the parties are not controlled the evidence, the court is, you have inquisitorial procedure. And the rules of procedure are relatively straightforward. So again, the difference between a superstar and a merely skilled lawyer is relatively small. Again, the system we have in the US is not better for society. It produces less accurate and more expensive justice, but it is better for rich clients and elite lawyers. And so again, what we've done is we've transformed, in this case, legal technology in a way that favors narrow elite skills over mid skills, but does not produce a social benefit. One thing that came to mind while I was reading a good chunk of the book was, is there anything to it being less able to pinpoint the well-off? Because now you can't say, oh, you just have things and it's multiplying because you just have things and they multiply. They're doing work. So it's harder to point at them and say, oh, this system is not good for us because they're doing work that other people could be doing as well. Yeah, so certainly one thing that, that this kind of inequality does is it creates an elite that thinks of itself as working class, as thinks of itself as having gotten there on its own, mm -hmm. that thinks of itself as super productive and therefore super deserving. Whereas an old aristocratic elite that got rich just because its parents died doesn't have that kind of moral self-confidence and is also much easier to attack, much easier to say to somebody, you don't deserve that if the only reason you have it is that you inherited it, than it is to say to somebody, you don't deserve that if the reason why you have it is that you've been working flat out since you were five, and you now are really good at something, and you have this fancy job where you work all the time. Now, my view is you still don't deserve it, but it takes a more complicated argument to explain why has like more layer of protection behind it in a way yeah that's interesting yeah i thought about that a few times like is this another level of competition that is added to what was there before to maintain what is held in is this a necessary result of hyper specialization or could there have been another way so that's a very deep question i think mm -hmm. um and it's connected to not just hyper specialization but advancing complexity and intricacy of, technolo of technology. Because one of the things that produces hyper-specialization is increasingly complicated technology. Mm -hmm. um, I think the standard view is it is an inevitable result. That as society becomes more complicated, as technology becomes more advanced, you just need to have more intensive and specialized skills to operate it. And so you're gonna get great rewards for the few people who have those skills. My view is that that's not so. Um, my view is that that treats technology as somehow driven by its own internal scientific logic, whereas in fact, technology is driven by social interests and economic interests. And let me give you a very concrete example. Let's look at healthcare, particularly healthcare surrounding, surrounding heart disease. Um, we have a medical system that can transplant a human heart. We have a medical system that can implant in a person an artificial heart. Now, to do that, you need a super skilled surgeon. Very few people have the skills either to design 
the mechanical heart or the transplant protocols or to do the actual surgery to save someone's life in this way. Um, that's an instance in which you have incredibly complicated technology that requires an incredibly skilled worker to use it. Here's some things we don't know about health. Um, is moderate intensity, long duration exercise better for my heart than short in duration, high intensity exercise? I read an article in the New York Times the other day, uh, is it better to exercise in the morning or in the evening? We don't know the answer to those questions. What kind of routine is most likely to induce someone to exercise? We don't know the answer to that question. Now, if we knew the answers to those questions, we would massively improve our heart health as a population. Mm -hmm. And almost certainly, answers to those questions, which involve technological advances, would create hundreds of thousands of middle-class jobs. Because if it turned out that exercising this way, subject to this kind of encouragement, would make my heart much healthier, then we would not hire people who help me exercise this way. Right. And those people would be middle-class people. They'd be called nurse practitioners, fitness trainers, dietitians. And so what we've done is we've invested in the heart technology that's called the artificial heart that makes super skilled surgeons really rich, but doesn't give anything to do for exercise trainers and nurse practitioners. But we could have invested in other technology, namely the lifestyle technology, the training technology, the exercise technology that would not make heart surgeons any richer. In fact, it might put them out of business because fewer of us would need heart transplants, but that would make these other people have a lot of good jobs and would make us as a society a lot healthier. And I think that kind of story, that's just an example, but you could tell in sector after sector and case after case a story of how what looks to us to be inevitable technological advancement, in fact, is technology that's being distorted by elite workers to create a demand for their skills. Mm -hmm. It's almost as though there's the ability and skill, and that same ability and skill is added to a little bit of strategy alongside it that is not exactly related to the cause, but is for what can I absorb to myself yeah. along the way? Because I already have this high level of skill. Let's use a little bit of math and strategy and planning and uh, help yeah, and, my and, system. And you don't even need it to be an elite conspiracy for this to happen. It, it could just be, you know, like if I think about my own, my own sector, law and legal academia, you know, you have a lot of really able law students. You have a lot of uh, elite law professors who are told to go do research. Well, what do you do? You invent complicated legal strategies that your very able law students can use. It's like another level of... Yeah, it's not because you're trying somehow to hurt the middle class. You're just doing what in your circumstance is natural to do. Mm -hmm. But it has these very bad social consequences. Right. They aren't taken into account normally in that default thinking. Yeah. Now, many examples were shown in the book of how this is creating separations in every category, education, health, whatever it might be for the different classes of individuals that are fairly noticeable at this time and becoming more noticeable as time goes on. What kinds of class conflicts will we be seeing as this progresses, let's say, in the next decade? Yeah, so I think that there are uh, two kinds. One is totally familiar already over the past five years, um, which is the, the sort of populist 
anger that we see from a middle class that is increasingly excluded from advantage and is told by the meritocratic system, the reason you're excluded is that you're not good enough. And you know, that kind of moral insult added to an economic injury produces enormous anger. And it, that anger is sometimes driven inwards. So uh, one way to understand the opioid epidemic is as a kind of self-harm of people who are demoralized by a system that excludes and insults them. And it's also directed outwards. One of the ways in which to understand the sort of rising nativism and resentment of people of color, especially in the white American middle class, is as a, a, a way of lashing out at people uh, who are perceived, I think falsely, to be getting advantages the middle class is not getting. Um, so one thing we see is that kind of class conflict. The other thing I think that we are increasingly going to see as our inequality gets more and more extreme and the elite that benefits economically is narrower and narrower mm -hmm. is a rising conflict between the super rich and the merely very rich. So right now, a striking thing of the system that we have is that people in the next 9% have for a long time supported policies that actually benefit the 1%. Yeah. So you know, these are uh, you know, generalist doctors, nurse practitioners, school teachers, engineers, civil servants. These have been people who have embraced a set of ideas around market fundamentalism and other things that don't actually benefit them. They benefit the financiers and the law firm partners and the super elites. And I think one thing that's happening is the next 9% are coming to the realization that this system is not helping them either and that they are increasingly more like the precarious middle class and less like the really elite than they thought they were. And so we're gonna start seeing some class conflict within the broad elite. And that's gonna be both sort of interesting to watch, but also politically very powerful because if the 1% loses the allyship of the next 9%, then it's extremely exposed politically. And, and, and I think one of the ways we're gonna see substantial change is through that mechanism. Is this dynamic leaving a very, very, very small percentage making decisions, let's say, and then a very long tail feeling more and more squeezed out as time progresses. Yeah, squeezed out economically. So, uh, you know, the, the gap between what the 1% has as income and lifestyle and what, you know, somebody who is uh, comfortable, allegedly, but not rich has as a lifestyle has grown and grown. You know, it, it used to be that the banker in town and a school teacher married to a nurse did not have so different lifestyles. They might even have lived in the same neighborhood. You know, one of the things I did in working on the book is I read through the business press of the 1950s. And there are all these stories of people who are CEOs of enormous companies, you know, the second largest cardboard manufacturing company in America. And these people live in a nine room house. So a three bedroom house 
and drive a six-year-old Chevrolet. Now today, the person who's CEO of that company probably makes $10 million a year, mm -hmm. right? And so what, what, what's happening is that the, not just the, the dollar sign differences, but the lived experience differences have become enormous. And we're seeing social fragmentation as a result of that. I like that you brought up the impacts on the majority. And what would you say are some of the psychological impacts of knowing something is off, but not being exactly able to pin it down? Well, look, two things. First of all, um, when you have this strong feeling that something's just not right, it doesn't make sense. It's unsettling and it, and it produces um, sort of noise in your own thoughts and noise in the political system. Mm -hmm. You're, you start looking for somebody who agrees with you that something's not right. But because you don't really have a clear view about exactly what's not right, it's not that you, you, you aren't so well placed to figure out whether the person who agrees with you in seeing it is also correct in understanding what's going on. And, and so one way to understand the rise of Donald Trump is that he rose to prominence in American politics at a time at which both the rest of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, the elites refused to see, refused to acknowledge that the middle class was getting squeezed. Everybody was talking about, you know, these are boom times, technology is being is so great for society, education is the answer. And, and what the middle class was seeing is, wait a minute, these are not boom times for me. GDP may be growing, but my income's not growing. Education is not the answer because the education that I can get and that my kids can get no longer leads to a secure job. Technology is causing me to be displaced by robots. And so now a politician like Donald Trump comes and says, you know what? This is a really bad setup for you. You're right to be angry. And that becomes extremely attractive. No matter that the next thing that he says, the problem is immigrants. The problem with people is people of color. It's just false. I mean, it's immoral, but it's also just false. That's not actually the problem. But the thing is, when the Democrats and the other Republicans are saying there's no problem, a lot of voters are going to be drawn to the person who says, no, no, there's a problem. Right. right? That's true. It makes like a relatability there. There's something. If you're not agreeing with me, you must not be noticing that something's off or you're doing well. And so it doesn't apply to you as much. That's a valid point. There's a separation in different parts of the nation in that way. Now, if we are at this point in the process, is there anything that can be done or is it almost like a train going a certain way? So I think there are things that can be done. Um, it's not that, that there's a magic bullet, um, but I think the way to think about what can be done is at two levels always. There's a policy level, so what policies could make this better? And then there's a politics level. What politics could produce movements that demand these policies, right? right? Um, in a way, the, the policies are easier. So here are some, some obvious policies. On the school front, you know, this is a country full of private schools and universities that 
spend huge sums of money educating their students. As I said, an elite private school spends five times as much as the typical public school per pupil per year educating its students that educate overwhelmingly super rich kids, but that are taxed as charities. So that alumni donations are tax deductible to the alumni and their endowments can grow without taxes. Now, taxing a university like Yale, where I teach, or like Princeton, um, as a charity is the equivalent of a massive welfare benefit for the rich students who go there. Mm -hmm. Somebody once calculated that Princeton, which is the richest university per capita in the world, Harvard has a bigger endowment, but it has a lot more people. Mm -hmm. Princeton is the richest university per capita in the world, that its tax-exempt status amounts to a public subsidy of $100,000 per Princeton student per year. When you think that the state of New Jersey spends only about $2,500 a year on educating community college students at Essex County Community College up the road from Princeton, that's just not right. And so, one, right, so, so the richest kids are getting this massive subsidy that's 40 times as big as the subsidy that middle and working class kids get. Mm -hmm. so, so one set of policies would be a series of policies to uh, require elite educational institutions to educate many, many more students, not just at the university level, but from kindergarten on, and many, many more middle and working class students. Uh, and you could say, if you don't do that, you lose your tax exempt status. If you're gonna be a club for rich people, you should be taxed like a club, not like a charity. Uh, so, so massive democratizing of education. That's one set of policies. Mm -hmm. Another set of policies on, policies on the work side are to encourage middle-class employment, to encourage the invention of technologies that middle-class workers can use to be productive. There are changes we could make in the payroll tax that would encourage this. Wage subsidies are a very good idea. A serious technology and labor market investment policy. Rebuilding workplace training, which has almost disappeared from the United States. So those are the kinds of policies that we should embrace. And what all these policies will do is they will empower middle-class students and middle-class workers and break down the gap between the elite and everybody else. The politics is more complicated. And to get that politics right, I think you have to generate um, substantial enthusiasm in the middle class demanding these changes. And you have to break down elite resistance. And one of the reasons why I spend time in the book describing the ways in which this system harms rich people by making them work very hard, by making them exploit themselves, by making them alienated from their own ambitions, is to try to persuade the elite that this system might make you rich, but it doesn't make you well, and you should be against it too. I thought that was a good point when you brought it up, because one of the greatest possible counterforces to this scenario is that even a chunk of those who appear to be doing well by the scenario find out they're ending up being exploited by it as well. Yes, yes. It's not motivating in a way. Yeah. I, I liked one, a few things in the book that where you described how each dynamic people were left in led to their personality types at that time. Like, for example, 60 years ago, people were more risk-averse uh, collectivist, a few things about like workers at that time, because that fit at that time. 
and now we have a certain i like how it relates to personality the economic dynamics and so then when you were looking at people we're looking at people but it's through the lens of how the current moment is affecting them and the pressures on them so there's their personality but there's also like i have to do this because of this so i like that element who are some key figures in the space of economics or economic understanding who you have found to be valuable over time? Well, that's a great question. Um, so, so some people uh, are incredibly valuable, partly because the things they predicted to happen didn't happen. So, so uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, predicts that by roughly speaking now, everybody will work only 15, 20 hours a week because technology will become so advanced that we won't need to work that hard. And what he doesn't see is that he imagines that everybody will want the leisure that the aristocrats of his day had, rather than that labor will be remade to constitute status and everybody will be scrambling to be more in demand as a worker than anybody else. But still, this idea that he sees that technological innovation will not just make us richer, but will completely transform our social norms. Uh, very powerful, very, very powerful. Um, I think Thomas Piketty is an absolutely essential figure in the recent history of economic thought, not because his diagnosis of the situation is correct. I actually don't think it's correct. I mean, he obviously thinks it is correct. So one of us is right and one of us is wrong and reasonable people can disagree. But whatever you think of his diagnosis, he and his colleagues generated detailed data about household income across the distribution and what they call distributional national accounts that enable you to see which households are getting how much income and have how much wealth at the level of the individual household that uh, people thought it was impossible to generate. And without these huge data sets, none of the work that, that I'm doing, that a thousand other people are doing, many of us criticizing the way Piketty interprets his data, but nevertheless, we're all using his data, right? We're all using his data and that's a massive, intellectual accomplishment and public service to produce this data. So he's an extremely important person to study. I like that point because the person who built something, even whether it's attacked or used, is a key step in the process. We can't discount that along the way. Yeah, yeah. And this data set is, his data is not just Piketty on his own. There are a lot of people at the Paris School of Economics. There's some people at MIT, some people at Berkeley others who've been working alongside him to produce this data and they should all get credit. It's a great thing that they've done. Hmm. In checking on the concept of this book, what is one message you would have to all people about what you would want them to take away from the meritocracy trap? Um, so I think the, the main message I have for everybody is that the system that we have now which purports to measure your worth by your wage and suggests that if you have skills that command a high wage, you are uh, deserving and virtuous is false and harms everybody. 
that if your skills don't command a high wage, it's not because you're lazy or lack merit. It's either because you haven't had the access to the training that would make you get a higher wage or because distortions in the market mean that the thing you're good at happens not to be valuable, but it could be in another world. And if you have skills that command a high wage, that doesn't mean that you're making other people better off and it doesn't mean that you deserve your advantages. So if there's one, one fundamental lesson of the book, it's that. it's that none of us deserves, those who have don't deserve and those who don't have don't deserve. The connection between wage and deserving, interesting. Professor Daniel Markowitz, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode, informed us about the meritocracy trap, the concept of meritocracy, and related economic issues. Thank you for such a deft set of questions. It's been a pleasure to be here. Glad to. And we are out.